Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship. To find info on our speaker and series, please check the podcast description. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! Hey, it worked. That's a good start. I know that this was introduced to you several weeks ago with Rod doing three weeks. You knew that he's on the other side of the world now, right? Yeah, flew out to um, Egypt and Israel. I'm not sure of the order on that, but I think they're there by now. But we certainly keep them in our prayers as well, along with all of the folks that went with him. But this was introduced to you as the pieces of the puzzle were brought together. There isn't a lot here that's very new. I do know, though, that I can't read what's up there. Because somebody made this incredibly small. But I can turn around and kind of look. And Sardis Fellowship vision statement. To be a community. That's the starting point. What is a community other than people who have something in common? There's something in common that we have as part of the body of Christ and as this particular part of the body of Christ means that we become a community. We become part of one another. We, in fact, become so attached to one another that we become a body. There are some who are arms, some who are legs, some who are noses, some who are toes, but we are all part of this community that has things in common. And here's three things that are said that we actually have more specifically. It's a community, first and foremost, that is centered in Christ. If it's not centered in Christ, right, centered around him, then what's the point? We're to be the body of Christ, We're to be the body of Christ. And if we are becoming the body of Christ, we are a community that is centered in Christ, what we'll find is that we will be in the process of becoming more Christ-like. But that's not all. Oops, didn't mean to do that. There we go. We're to be a community that is empowered by the Spirit of God. Empowered by... The Spirit of God. When Jesus was about to ascend to heaven, he said to his disciples, You will be my witnesses. After you receive the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, then throughout Judea, and into Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we might as well be a Rotary Club or any other club. But when we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can then do the work of God that he has called us to. And we're doing it all, not for your glory, not for my glory, but for whose glory? The glory of God, exactly. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the purpose of man is to glorify God. It's why we're here. It's why he created us. Though we can live in relationship to him, but never say, my goodness, I've got to be just one of the best people I've ever met. It's to point to him. It's to bring glory to him. It's to make God look good. So to be a community centered in Christ, empowered by the spirit to the glory of God as a, and here's where we kind of fooled around with the words a little bit over the months and the leadership team came to this point. Loving 
and just presence in our local community and world. Loving and just. Sometimes it's easy to be more loving than just. Sometimes we find it easier to be more just than loving. We're called to do both. And that's a tricky balance. Somehow God manages to do it perfectly. We human beings have a little more difficulty than that. But that's what we have been created to be as a loving and just presence and as a visible presence. You remember when Jesus talked about you are the light of the world? Hide it under a bushel. You, you know the song, right? <laughs> you don't want to hide it. You want it to be visible. You want who you are in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through you, glorifying God to be visible to the world. If we're invisible, how can we glorify God? As a visible presence. And then finally, this is the one that comes out of that statement that we shared together and that you all memorized, right? Transformative presence in our community world. We're not just here to have a good time. Although we ought to be having a good time. We are here to be a transformative presence. My, my wife has a, uh, a mobility scooter that um, we've taken all over the place. And my daughter, a number of years ago, gave her a little emblem to go on the front of it. And it's uh, Optimus Prime. <laughs> because the scooter will come apart in several pieces and fit into our trunk so that I, we can go anywhere with it. We even took it to the Caribbean, actually, but it, it transforms, and we are to be a transformative influence in our world. Now, so far, all I've done is kind of remind you of what Rod had said over the last few weeks. And it's not really new. In fact, if you look on the wall that's just behind above those doors, you will find much of what we're already talking about here, unless it was painted over since the last time I looked. But I want to talk to you about the very power of vision. Not about the specifics of your vision, but really why it's so important to, to know what that vision is. And so we can look through scripture, and I already talked about the idea that God had a vision in mind when he began to create this world. We look at Abraham, and he got a vision from God, and that was that while he and Sarah were childless, God said, you're going to have more kids and grandkids and great-grandkids than all the sand and all of the beaches and all around the world. That was the vision that God gave Abraham. We find that Moses had a vision from God when he was uh, with his father-in-law, Jethro, and they, God came to him in a burning bush. Remember that? And he said, you're going to go back home to Egypt and you are going to set my people free. And Moses said, oh, no, no, that, that's, that's not me. In fact, some said that he probably stuttered. He had trouble talking, so I'm not going to try and imitate that. But eventually God said, oh, for crying out loud. I, I'm sure that's a direct quote. God said, for crying out loud, Moses, I'm not asking you to do this on your own or in your own strength. you got a brother who's really good at talking. You're going to have him work with you. But that was God's vision for Moses. 
David had a vision to build a brand new temple to honor God. And he did everything in preparation for that. But when it came time to start building, God said, no, you got too much blood on your hands, David. Your son Solomon is going to build it instead. But God's vision was fulfilled through the son. We can talk about the apostles, Acts 1.8, that I already talked about there, where Jesus came to them and said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to go from Jerusalem throughout Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you know what happened at the beginning of the book of Acts? They got really comfortable in Jerusalem. God's vision was, you're going to take this message of the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, the fact that he was raised from the dead, you're going to take it around the world. And they got comfortable. And sometimes I think God just sits up in heaven going like this. They know what I told them. Okay, Stephen was martyred, the persecutions began, and they actually began to fulfill the vision that God had laid out for them. We can talk about Paul. Paul had a vision to go to Damascus and destroy the Christians that were there. Along the way, he met, the, met Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus said, no, that, that was not God's vision. You thought it was God's vision. It was not God's vision. God's vision is that you're going to go to Damascus now that you have met me and you're going to meet up with somebody there by the name of Ananias and he's going to explain to you what this is all about, what really happened. But God also at the same time gave a vision to Ananias. He said, there's a guy by the name of Paul that I want you to go and meet. And Ananias said, I've heard about Paul. Dangerous man. I don't want anything to do with him. God said, Trust me. And he did. And Paul went and met with Ananias and he spelled it all out for him. And he gave Paul a brand new vision, a brand new mission of what his role was to be in the body of Christ. We can talk about Peter. He had a vision of being able to eat food that he was never allowed to eat. Which said also, you're going to spend time with people that you had never thought you would spend any time with. You're going to spend time with those dirty pork-eating Gentiles. And it's going to be okay. Anybody here like pork? Ribs? Come on, seriously. Yeah. I'm so thankful for Peter's vision. <laughs> God has a way of expanding our minds. We can go way, way back to the days of Moses, and God had a very specific vision that he passed on to Moses of what the tabernacle was going to look like. This tent of meeting and everything that was going to be in it. And he said, Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get this and it's going to be these dimensions by these dimensions, and you're going to use these materials and that material, and here's what you're going to do. And he had gave these incredible specifics of what this worship center was going to look like. God gave the vision. It was God's vision. And he did everything he needed to do to bring it about. I love this verse, Psalm 127, verse 1. Will you read it with me, please? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
The goal here is not to come up with a really cool vision. It's to know what God's vision is. It's to bring about the vision that God has given. And my best understanding of what a vision is, is really simple. It says, what would it look like? What would it look like? When you close your eyes and imagine what this would look like, when it's fulfilled, what would that look like? Well, we're going to draw from the story of a man by the name of Nehemiah. Um, some people know it well, a lot of people really don't, but he got his own little book, and in fact, he wrote it first person. There's not a lot in scripture where it's, it's written first person, but literally, this is Nehemiah telling his story of what had happened. Here's a map of the Middle East, going back to those days. We can go back a couple of hundred years before this to the Assyrian captivity when Israel had been divided into two separate nations. There was Israel and there was Judea. Israel was taken captive into the Assyrian Empire and never returned. So by the time we get to the Babylonian captivity, something like a couple of hundred years later, what we find is these people are kind of saying, never again, never again, never again. We're not going to be dispersed and never come back together again. You'll notice on that map, if you can read it, 900 mile walk to go from Jerusalem to Babylon, where they are now in captivity. That's a bit of a hike. Let's say four months. Anybody here ever gone on a four-month hike? Four hours? Quite a ways. Whole different world that they were being called into. And if you can read this, we got the United Kingdom with King Saul, David, and Solomon. We've got the divided kingdom, Israel, the North Kingdom. It goes off and never is returned. The Judah Kingdom. Um, is taken into exile in Babylon, and there comes a point where the people kind of start moving back in groups. And when they get back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple. This is where you get um, Esther or Ezra in particular. And then along comes Nehemiah. And, well, let's just read it together. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire." Here's the situation. Here is the reality of what has happened. The Israelites have started to return. They've built up the temple. But now Nehemiah gets word that the city is still vulnerable. The walls are gone. The gates are gone. Everything has been burned. And he finds that incredibly distressing, which makes sense. The beginning point of any vision is understanding the reality of what is now. Is to continue. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
This was the response, the reaction of what happened when Nehemiah found out what was going on back in Jerusalem. He was heartbroken. This cannot be allowed to continue was his reaction. But his immediate response was simply to pray and put it all on God's table. Then I said, here's the prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, let your ear be attentive. I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. This is not an unusual response. We find this kind of thing several times in scripture because this is the repentance that follows recognizing what the reality is, what the reaction is, leads to repentance. He says, remember the instruction, God, that you gave your servant Moses when he said, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God, remember when you said that we were going to mess up? And you said that after we messed up, if we came back to you and we repented, that you would make up for the fact that we had messed up? If we lost our land, that you would give it back to us. I'm not sure there's anything quite as powerful in all the world as going to God and saying, I remember when you said, and I believe you. He reminded God of what his promise had been. He said, God, you knew we were going to mess up. We're coming clean. I'm coming clean. And I want to remind you that you said that you would give us back what we had lost when we returned to you. He prayed, God, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor on the presence of this man. Well, if you stopped reading there, you wouldn't know what was happening. Something's going on in Nehemiah's mind. He's got a plan for what's going to come next, and he is saying to God, I know what I'm going to do, and I need you to be with me in it. I need you to bless me in it. And so he places before God a very strong request. For I was the cupbearer to the king. And you read that and you think, so? What difference does that make? Well, what it meant was as a cupbearer to the king, he got to walk into the presence of the king. So he had a responsibility. God had built all of these circumstances around him that he is now here at this point. He's been challenged by the reality that's taking place back in Jerusalem. He's reminded of God that he said, come back to me and I'll bring you back everything that you had before. 
But he also saying here, I had a responsibility. A while back, I, I wrote a blog post and, and uh, had a few people comment on it, but everybody's satisfied with what's going on in our world. Can I just see a show of hands? Who would you like to talk to about that? I'm not saying it would do any good, but would you like to have a conversation with our prime minister? Okay, bad example. <laughs> would, would premier, mayor, wherever you break it down. But you know, generally speaking, we don't have a whole lot of access to these people who have much power in our world. You can't call up Buckingham Palace and say, I'd just like to meet with Charles for a minute or the White House, but we can go to the God of the universe. We can talk to our Heavenly Father anytime we want. What could be better than that? But Nehemiah here, He's cupbearer to the king, and so he has the responsibility because all of this has been laid on him of what it is that he needs to do. So chapter two. In the month of Nisan, anybody here drive a Nisan? It's not spelled the same. In the month of Nisan, which is about four months later, so this was not the next day, this was four months later, in that 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. This was his job. I don't know what had been happening over the previous four months in terms of who got the wine and where and when and anything else, but we do know that on this occasion, Nehemiah brings it forward. Now, if you happen to be the cupbearer to the king, you had certain responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities, first, you would be a wine taster to make sure there's no poison in there. And second, you would come in as a very happy individual. You would never want to appear sad in the presence of the king. I got the impression that he walked in something like this. Now, maybe the other choice was that he'd walk in looking something like this. But obviously the king saw there was something wrong and he said, I had not, near my right side, not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Why do you look like Kanye? By the way, that would be a death sentence. You appeared without having a Sheldon smile, or more aptly, a true smile on your face. The king could say, take him away. I never want to see him again. Execute him. And that's part of the reason that Nehemiah prayed, God, may I be able to communicate with this man instead of, like, I'm laying my, my life on the line here. The king said to me, did I skip something? There we go. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? 
Why wouldn't I look downcast? The king said to me, what is it you want? Well, that's a very pleasant surprise. I don't know if he was actually expecting that God's prayer would have been answered so directly and so immediately. The king said, what is it you want? Then I prayed in that moment. You ever prayed those three-second prayers before you open your mouth? Maybe we should all do it more often. I pray to the God of heaven and I answer the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. King, I'd like to be able to have a vacation so I can go back home and help fix my home. And the king, with the queen sitting beside him, so there's a witness, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Remember, how, how far the walk is it? Four months, right? You can be away for a while. Have you heard the expression, in for a penny, in for a pound? Well, this is British penny and pound. It's when you go all in. It's when you put it all on the line. So Nehemiah has survived what could have killed him, had him killed. He has said to the king, here's what's bothering me. Here's my plan to do something about it. But that's not quite enough. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so they'll provide me, get rid of the word, conduct, safe conduct, until they arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. King, thanks so much for not killing me. Thanks for hearing my request for not executing me because of that. Thanks for saying, yes, I can go. But by the way, I want to get there safely. And so I'm asking for you to send some letters that I can give them to people that says you have you sent me on this journey. And I'd also like to make sure that when I get there, I'm going to be able to go to the forest and they're going to provide all the lumber free of charge so that we can rebuild the gates. That's what they call it. Chutzpah. It's when you really go out on a limb and you're saying that not on, okay, thanks so much, but I don't just want a car, I want a Ferrari. He put it all in and he said, I'm going all the way within with this. And so because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Why were the requests granted? Because the hand of God was on him. If this was Nehemiah's vision and not God's vision, he could not have counted on having the hand of God on him. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. Now, this is cool. The king also went above and beyond, right? The king also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. How cool is that? I'm not sure Artaxerxes had any idea that this was really God's vision that he's helping. He was all about helping make happen. But he was all in. 
He was in for a penny, in for a pound. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Nehemiah writes, After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He's not going around saying, we're fulfilling God's dream here. We're fulfilling God's vision here. He's not doing any of that. In fact, he didn't share any of that information up to this point. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. So they went around the city. He was on a horse. Everybody else was walking. By night, they went out and inspected the wall. When they were finished, I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. After all this time, the preparation, the four months of just making the journey there, assuming they did it in four months, but now they've seen the damage together and he's sharing the fact that this is all a vision that came from God. A couple of quotes from there. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. This was between me and God and those who made it possible beginning with the king, but he hadn't shared it with the people. He hadn't shared it with the people that he'd met up with now that he's arrived in Jerusalem until that moment. And then he also says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Finally, he shares with them. You know, this was not just a good idea. It wasn't because I missed home. I'd never lived there in all probability. But this is God's vision that we are working on. This is God's vision that he has encouraged you and me to become a part of. So they said, let's start building. Let's start rebuilding. There's a bunch of inevitables that happen. I, I couldn't avoid using this graphic. There's actually three things that are inevitable when you are pursuing God's vision. Number one, why did I use blue? It doesn't show up on that screen. Number one, what's it say? Hard work. Whenever God lays a plan, whenever he lays out a vision, you can be guaranteed that he does not expect us to sit back in the lazy boy and just watch it happen. He expects us to be part of it. He's the senior partner, we're the junior partner, but we still expect us to be involved with it. And when we start doing our part, we see other things begin to happen. At least nine gates were repaired during this period of time. That's not a small amount of work. If you read through Nehemiah, he, he actually credits each of the families that helped to rebuild the wall. And you'll find out that right next to his house was this gate and so-and-so helped rebuild that. And then his family members helped. And it just goes in incredible detail, which reminds me, I think there's going to be something like a, a book of what happened in heaven where we're going to find our names if we've been partnering with God and we're going to be able to read everybody else's story. Now, you won't find that anywhere in the Bible, I don't think. 
But I think that that's how God is going to honor his children. And we're going to turn it right back to God and say, I never could have done it without you. You deserve all the credit. Thanks, Lord. But you deserve all the credit. And back to the verse we read earlier. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand and watch, stand watch in vain. Number two, when we're fulfilling God's vision, expect opposition. It's going to happen. People are going to oppose God. They're going to impose those who seek to fulfill God's vision. There were some people that didn't like what was going on. Some of them were neighboring countries and neighboring leaders who didn't want to see Jerusalem become strong again because they saw that as a threat to them. And so we got Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. They all began to plot against Nehemiah and against the city of Jerusalem. And as a result, they were being re reminded that it is the Lord who is great and awesome who will fight for your families. It isn't just you protecting yourself, although you need to do that. But God is on your side. Remember we read in scripture of different times when the, uh, the army of angels is actually surrounding, even though we can't see them, but they are doing the protecting. First Thessalonians 2 says... Paul writing, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Paul faced it. Why would we think we would be any different? This past week has been a, a very interesting one for me. One of the missionaries from our home church um, spends half his time in Uganda and the other half his time here in, in Abbotsford. And we had dinner with him and his wife a few weeks ago, and we talked about me doing some of the teaching of the courses that they're doing over there. Uh, it's called the Bible Training Center for Pastors, is where he is involved. Our church is in the process right now of building a training center there because one of the great weaknesses among pastors in Uganda is that they're just not prepared. I could tell you some horror stories. But the, the, there's this group of 10 pastors from throughout Uganda that Wellington meets with, right now he's over there, so he's doing some of it in person, but he meets with them regularly on Zoom in order to teach classes. And I've been teaching this personal spiritual life book, um, which was supposed to be one night a week for four weeks. Things got kicked around, and so I got to teach beginning last Sunday night, um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, four hours each night, beginning at 10 p.m. Do the math. It was phenomenal, though, meeting these guys on Zoom. It was just incredible. Learning more of their stories about what is unique with the opposition that they find in Uganda. A huge part of that opposition is the fact that it, so many of the powerful and influential pastors and churches there 
are built on empire building for the pastor and his family. They're built on the idea that if you really love Jesus, you'll try to outdo one another when it comes to giving Christmas presents to the pastor. So one person will say, well, you know, I'm being really generous to the pastor this year. I bought him a new car. And somebody else will say, I bought him a three-week cruise. And in fact, there's a condo that goes with it that he's able to use anytime he's able to get to Fiji. And there's this competition. But so much of it begins with an invitation to accept Jesus because if you accept Jesus, he is going to make you rich and he is going to heal every disease. Now, who wants to become really rich and who wants to have every disease healed? The hands go up. Okay, come and accept Jesus. And that's what will happen. And so dozens, hundreds will respond to that call. But is that a gospel call? No. So the true message of the gospel and the true message of scripture is often being completely left out of the conversation. I got to deal with 10 Ugandan pastors this week that are facing that kind of opposition. So you have people in the church who are saying, sure, I'm a Christian because I accepted the invitation to health and wealth, prosperity gospel. And you've got others that are saying, oh, I thought about that the whole year. Every one of you pastors is a shyster. You're just trying to take advantage of people. And it was guys who are serious about the gospel who are trying to overcome that opposition and just love people into the kingdom of God. It's a great experience. I loved it. We didn't go fast enough. I've got to do one more class. Middle of October is about when I'll be ready for another all-nighter. When you're 71, anything can become an all-nighter, right? Anything after about 9.30. So... Another thing that is inevitable from coming from opposition, Romans 8.31. What then shall we say in response to all of the opposition that's out there? What can we say is, read it with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? A friend of mine put it this way. If God's for us, everyone else might as well be. Isn't that true? Now, I'm not saying don't we always live like that, but it's true. If God is for us, everybody else might as well be because they have nothing on God. Opposition. Fellow Jews were being taken. This was part of what was going on in Nehemiah's day and exploited by abused and abused. And part of that was coming from fellow Jews. You want to return to that house they used to have? I'll loan you the money to make it possible. 40% interest. And Nehemiah said, no, no, no. We're not going to take advantage of one another like that. There were death threats on Nehemiah that continued, but it, was, it finally got the wall completed in only 52 days. And God was again protecting the city of Jerusalem with walls and gates. Number three, God's provision. Man, I love this one. He gave a plan. 
Nehemiah, here's the plan. You got a vision. Here's the plan. Now let's work our way through that plan. He gave them the provisions. Remember the, the, the safe transport and they're going to get all of the, the lumber donated. God provided it. He's going to give them protection. They traveled with a cavalry who remained. He gave the personnel, the people that could walk around and see the devastation, and then the people that could gather together and make it all happen. He made it productive. I'm amazed that they were able to do this in only 52 days. And remember, oh, I didn't mention it earlier, so how could you remember it? Uh, part of what happened was the opposition led to the fact that there were times when half of those who were supposed to be building the walls had to stand around with swords and shields in case they were attacked. You know who this is? Hudson Taylor, China Inland Mission, a great quote that every one of you, I'm sure, has heard at one time or another. Will you read it with me? God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Thank you. God's work. Or to narrow it in even a little bit more on what we've been talking about today, God's vision done in God's way. When God provides the vision of what can be, of what he wants to be, he will support it. And in fact, we shouldn't be talking about the power of vision. We're talking about the power of God's vision. I've had these conversations with boards and leadership teams and pastors and sometimes they get kind of upset with me in the beginning because they'll say, I, don't, I couldn't care less what your vision is. What? I really couldn't. I couldn't care less what my vision is. Whose vision do we need to find out? God's vision. And if it's God's vision, nothing's going to stop it when we participate with him. God's vision. I know that from the beginning of this process, as your leadership team and your pastors were looking at the details of what it is that is believed, it was to determine what is God's vision. Yours doesn't matter, theirs doesn't matter, Rod's doesn't matter, mine doesn't matter. God's vision is the only one that really matters. So if this is, in fact, the vision that God has given to this church, you're going to be part of the team to make it happen. Is there any greater privilege than being part of the body of Christ and working together on what he's called us to do? Hard work? Yep. Opposition? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and God's provision as he provides the plan, the provisions. You like the way I did that? Protection, personnel, and productivity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this fresh look at vision for Sardis Fellowship 
began years ago and was narrowed down and refocused and simplified and prayed over and prayed over and prayed over and believe that what you have called this church to be is a transformative presence in this community. It is so much bigger than the leadership team. In fact, Lord, it's bigger than every person who's here this morning and others who would call this their church home. It's so big that it can't be accomplished without you being at the very center of it. So, Lord, may we see you at the center and this church as participants in your vision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.